Hey listeners, before we get to the conversation, I just wanted to tell you a bit about the services and solutions that Getting Smart offers. Did you know that we collaborate with and advocate for impact-oriented partners who are committed to accelerating the future of teaching, leading, and learning? Our strategic solutions are tailored to best support each partner in achieving their goals and helping leaders know what to do next. Working with our vast network of resources and partners, we design informed strategic solutions that last. Whether your organization needs support with learning design and coaching, strategy, professional learning, media, communication and marketing, or are looking to build your next campaign, we are here to help. If you're interested in learning more about our services and working with our team, email jessica at gettingsmart.com or visit gettingsmart.com slash what we do. Steve, what's the key to accessible college education for historically marginalized groups? Okay, a big question. So um, I would respond to that by um, being very focused on students or prospective students, being very student-centered, and asking your prospective students, well, what do you want from this post-secondary ed credential? What are you looking for? What's your goal? What are you curious about? What are you interested in? You know, I want to be as community-based as possible as opposed to, you know, the university sort of being very you know, kind of top-down or presumptuous. So, you know, that's the baseline for me. What, uh, what, what are the students looking for? What's their goal? All right. Another piece of this would be um, it's critical for all students, whether marginalized or not, to feel like they belong on a campus, to experience community on a campus, to feel support on a campus. And, you know, we know no matter what your background is, if you don't feel like you belong, it's going to be very hard for you to persist and succeed and complete. So, you know, what does it take for a university to make a degree program, to make its campus one in which students, particularly first-gen students, students who are uh, from low wealth backgrounds, students maybe who are people of color and they're going to a primarily white institution, um, what will it take to make them feel like they belong? And how um, are their gifts and their assets um, celebrated to make your university community even stronger because they are present and enrolled on your campus? So there's that. Steve, those are, those are all revolutionary ideas of starting with the learner and creating a place where they feel like they belong. Call me madcap, but, you know, John, John Dewey was talking about this several hundred years ago, right? And so... we're, we're still trying to learn the lesson. Hey, I'm Tom Vanderark, and you're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I have the pleasure to be joined uh, by Steve Katsouris. Steve is the author um, of a terrific book that we're going to talk about. Today, he's also the CEO of the Come to Believe Network. It's uh, an inclusive, accessible college model. That model is really based on the success that he and his colleagues built at Arupe College at Loyola, Chicago. Uh, it's been recognized nationally as a, a terrific example of a small school that produced um, very high graduation rates uh, for kids of color, historically marginalized uh, groups that have had um, uh, a tough time in college, <laughs> colleges that didn't start with a learner and didn't create a sense of uh, belonging. Uh, Steve, it's great to have you with us. 
It's a pleasure to be here, Tom. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, Steve, you, you were uh, ordained in the Jesuit order back in the 80s, and but, but you've really spent the last uh, 30 years as a, a teacher and a school administrator and and um, university president. Um, do, do, do I have this right that you started at um, Nativity in Brooklyn? So, yeah, Nativity. Um, the, was that before before the Jesuits? That was before the Jesuits. And that's because of Nativity and because of my students, I entered the Jesuits. So, I mean, you know, not to get too religious with you, but, you know, God's working with and through all of us and those students and their experiences and their successes and their, you know, um, work really inspired me. And I thought, well, if the Jesuits are involved in this kind of work, um, there's something long-term here for me. So I was at the original Nativity School on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the 1980s, and I entered the Society of Jesus or the Jesuits in 1987. I wasn't ordained until 1998. The Jesuits have a very long <laughs> training program. Uh, but that also included, in, our, in my training, uh, being part of a team that started another nativity model school. So these are elementary schools for um, kids, often either immigrants or students from low-wealth backgrounds, who are in underperforming school districts. And... Um, this is another option for, for these kids. We started uh, a school in Harlem in, uh, from 1991. I was there, 91 to 94. I was one of the founders there uh, called the Gonzaga Program, and that was based on nativity. There are over 50 nativity model schools now around the country. They're not all Jesuit. They're not even all Catholic, but they are all addressing uh, a need for students for uh, what the Jesuits call cura personalis, care for the whole person, lots of wraparound support services to get kids across the finish line and prepared for, in that case, for um, success in high school. Steve, I, I mentioned that because uh, I've, I've listened to your story a couple of times and I, I know those life lessons uh, about the importance of creating relationships, of starting with the learner, of creating places of safety and belonging, um, uh, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, you've really brought those forward into the into higher education, but they're uh, critically important lessons. You you went on to start a Rupe College. What's the backstory of that, and how how in the world did you convince Loyola to to let you start this program? Well, Loyola really convinced me. So you know, I was recruited in 2014. I was working at the University of San Francisco, another great Jesuit school. I was an associate dean there, and I loved it. And um, you know, part of my Jesuit training uh, many years before was to study philosophy. And I was at Loyola University of Chicago. Really liked Chicago, not the weather so much, but everything else was was great. Um, so Mike Garanzini, a Jesuit uh, at Loyola Chicago, the president of Loyola Chicago, reached out to me in 2014 and he said, listen, I think I've got something for you. It's risky, but it could be really worthwhile. So I thought, oh my God, you know, um, Pell eligible students. This is a startup. I was in my 50s then. I thought, do I have the energy for a startup at this point in my life? You know, San Francisco, great weather, great wine. Why am I leaving this? I went to check out uh, Chicago, uh, dressed as a, uh, you know, in early May. I had like a little windbreaker from um, San Francisco. I got off the plane at O'Hare. It was snowing. So I thought, confirmation, a burning bush. This is why I should not be here. Um, but I also thought this is what we ought to be doing. And, you know, um, Jesuit schools, Catholic universities, um, 
all universities have language and rhetoric about social justice, about uh, DEI, about wanting to be uh, with folks on the margins. You know, and this was a way of substantively uh, putting meat on those bones of that that that, that rhetoric. So um, I said goodbye to San Francisco and um, moved to Chicago in 2014, not as president of Arupe, but as founding dean. And um, uh, that was um, an extraordinary first year, an extraordinary six years of my life total uh, at, at Arupe. The first year was the launch year. So I had about mm, 10 months between the time I got off the plane in Chicago and the time we enrolled the first class to get accreditation, to um, recruit at first class, to raise some uh, funds, to hire people, to uh, create a curriculum, to work on the design for um, uh, an orientation for the summer for the students, to welcome the students. So um, uh, it was exhilarating, it was exciting, it was a little bit exhausting, but so worth it. How many students did you launch with that fall? 159. (laughs) I imagine you knew their names pretty quickly. I did. I'm a little bit like Rain Man when it comes to names. So, um, you know, so that low number helped. I mean, Steve, Steve, why why was it, was it contemplated as a two-year program from the get-go? And if so, why? That strikes me as an interesting uh, idea. You know, we, uh, it's a great question. At the time, we were recognizing that there are so many two-year colleges, like those in Chicago, where the graduation rates were low. And, you know, universities like Loyola would say, oh, well, we're happy to accept transfers from two-year colleges, but they weren't graduating, you know? Um, Also, we wanted to focus on a specific population, students who are right out of high school, who had B minus to C minus um, GPAs in high school, who had low ACTs, mostly because they couldn't afford ACT prep classes or SAT tutors or or that kind of a thing. So we thought of this problem as a bridge, a bridge from high school to going on to a four year or going into the workforce and really sort of addressing um, the two-year college conundrum that we were seeing in Chicago. Now, I mean, in Chicago at that time, there were over 100,000 students enrolled in uh, seven city colleges. So 159 students was not going to be much of a threat for them. But um, it was also, I don't know if Loyola thought about this, but it became apparent to me, and I think to my colleagues early on, schools like Loyola were missing out on great students, on great young people who, you know, because of their grades or because of their backgrounds or because of finances, they'd say, boy, Loyola's not the school for me. I'll never get into Loyola. I can never succeed at Loyola. That's not for me. That's for white people or that's for smart people or rich people. These perceptions, right? And um, as I said earlier, these students at Arupe College really influenced and impacted the overall university in terms of, you know, all right, well, what works in terms of retention for root-based students? How do we deliver a liberal arts um, a curriculum more effectively, more efficiently because of the root-based students' um, experiences? So they're influencers in the overall enterprise's uh, success and trajectory. So uh, why did it work so well? What were the keys to success? So if we fast forward, your graduation rates uh, at Arupe have been been phenomenal. Is it the 
small school environment? Is it the supports? Is it the personalized instruction? Is it all of those? Yeah, I'd have to say, um, first of all, it was um, Arupe benefits from being part of the larger university. Loyola has a national brand that's very positive, and that was very attractive for these students. Also, Loyola had the bandwidth to create this new academic unit. So, you know, uh, lots of credit to Loyola University for saying, let's um, try something different here. We, they had space on the campus, on the Water Tower campus, the downtown campus. So the, the students saw other undergrads and they began to think of themselves, oh, I like business. I like accounting. I like statistics. I like philosophy. I, li- I like poli-sci. I want to go on and get my bachelor's degree. So the Loyola piece was, was huge. Um, the faculty that we hired, I mean, they're really the heroes of the story. They were also the academic advisors. And so um, we know this, and this is no fault of anyone, but, you know, academic advising in a lot of community colleges, the advisors have hundreds, 500, 600, 650 advisees. And, um, you know, these are students whose parents are not, you know, navigating all of this for them. They're working, they're, they're commuting, they're, you know, um, school is just one of their many priorities. Similar population with, with Arupe. Our faculty were trained as advisors and um, they would have loads of 20 to 25. And the advising style was called intrusive advising. It was based on my personality, very intrusive. Um, we also had a lot of wraparound support services, whether it was a very robust orientation program where community was emphasized and built immediately, um, whether it was all the students for, um, having access to free breakfast and lunch every day that there were classes. And that was to address food insecurity. But again, it was about building community. You know, I mean, I'm from a religion where important things happen at a meal, at a table. So, you know, similarly, this is, um, you know, uh, translates to what happens at the uh, student commons at Arupe. Every student gets a, a technology, a computer, a laptop, so that they're on a level playing ground. It's the same uh, a laptop that their faculty members have. So, um, you know, they're not doing their homework on their smartphone or in the library or nowhere, you know, kind of thing. They have access to the same amount of technology. To address mental health, we um, uh, had two social workers uh, full-time working at Arupe. And when Father Garanzini um, recruited me, he said, now, listen, you've got to share this building at Loyola with another academic unit. And I said, Mike, we're Jesuits. We don't like sharing. We're not good at that. And he said, well, I'm sorry about that, Steve. But he said, well, who do you want to share with? So I said, well, you have a school of social work. Every MSW student I've ever met is looking for hours. We can be their hours. And your group based students can benefit from their services. What a great synergy of two different academic units, right? Uh, mutually beneficial. So you can see we have all these uh, career services person that's working uh, to, uh, with our students to find uh, employers that are interested in students from Loyola and a diverse workforce. Sign me up. You know, this is this is tremendous. So uh, and then a college transfer counselor that works with students as they finish their associate's degrees. Will they continue at Loyola? Will they go to city uh, to um, um, Chicago or uh, Illinois State Colleges? Will they go to other Catholic universities? Do they want to go away? Do they want to stay local? Uh, can we help you navigate FAFSA? I mean, all of that. And then finally, 
a graduate support coordinator. So that position really tracks, well, how are the students doing and holds alumni. But I mean, you know, you talk about stats. So, you know, 88% of our graduates go on to four-year institutions. Almost 80% complete their bachelor's degrees in five years' time versus the national average, 14% of those who start in two-year colleges, one-four, 14% complete their bachelor's in six years' time. So, you know, it, it, it didn't just work at Arupe for the two years. That bridge served to get them to the finish line for their bachelor's as well. So, Steve, that, I, I, I love the... I love the whole design. I love the wraparound supports, but that sounds like it costs two or three times what the normal program does at Loyola. So how do you make that so supportive and yet affordable? Yeah. So we leverage uh, being part of the larger university. So like other academic units, we benefit from a building. And that building, custodian, security, technology. Our students have access to the university library, to the RecPlex, the wellness center. You know, as a dean, I benefited from legal counsel and HR and um, the advancement office and marketing and communications. So all of that, the cost per student at Arupe was $15,115. All of our students, unless they were undocumented, more about that in a second, but if they were, uh, all of our students qualified for federal and state aid. So that covered about 61% of my budget. I had to raise $2 million a year. And now I am one of those rare deans that, well, I, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of deans don't like fundraising. I really like it. And um, you know, I just thought this was such a compelling thing for funders to support. And people said, well, of course, you know, I'll support students and the breakfast and lunch program or a computer for every student or these other resources. So I, we always exceeded our goal of, of, of $2 million. That's why the Biden plan, you know, I was very interested in what he built into for those wraparound support services because that's what get these, gets these students across the finish line. 20% of our students were undocumented, so they were ineligible for federal and state aid. Um, we partnered with um, the Dream.us, so kudos to them. Don Graham from the Washington Post family started this, uh, and uh, he and his colleagues at Dream.us would offer scholarships to offset what undocumented students were not receiving from uh, the feds and the state. And uh, and so that was student revenue coming from the, the dream.us. They were at, outsta- they've been outstanding partners. Steve, were, um, were and are most of the Arupe students, uh, commuter students? Uh- yes. You know, so that's another cost saver. Um, uh, every 18 year old wants to live on campus, you know, have a roommate, have that experience to uh, be on campus already. However, that would put, you know, an additional financial burden on the university. So it's a commuter school. And um, we find that for the most part, that works. Um, you know, sometimes I'm asked, well, you know, are the students really able to participate fully as a Loyola student? And the answer is, well, remember, they're commuting. And so that's an added layer of, you know, less of an opportunity that they lived on campus. But um, 
you know, from a cost perspective, um, it made it uh, doable for the university, for me as a fundraiser, and for you know, I, mean, I think the ruin board at Loyola was is around fourteen thousand dollars. You know, times the the goal is, but we 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 maxed out at three hundred fifty students um, before the pandemic. Well, you know, if they're all living on campus, that would be a big nut. So, Steve, uh, it sounds like four years ago. Uh, you wrote this down in a in a great book called "Come to Believe: How the Jesuits Are Reinventing Education Again," uh, which I, I think um, tells in a little more detail the the story that uh, we've just discussed. And then a couple of years ago, you you started the uh, "Come to Believe" network, and you're now um, in the process of helping other institutions take advantage of this model. Is that basically right? You've got the uh, timeline. That's right. That said, you know, before I left Arupe, before I moved from Chicago uh, back to New York in 2020, I um, we had already replicated the model once at the University of St. Thomas, the Doherty Family College. And they've also experienced great success. Their president, Julie Sullivan, very visionary. You know, I sent folks Marupe up to Minnesota, to the Twin Cities to ad- advise them. She sent folks to visit, you know, Arupe. She brought her board to visit our students and our, you know, our building and to talk to my colleagues and me. And um, uh, they've, they're, they're remarkable. So I thought, okay, we're an N of two. And um, I, I asked Accenture, well, some funders said, you know, you need to get a replication feasibility study. So I hired Accenture to conduct that. And, you know, they said it's very replicable. You have to have some, the host institution has to have some key characteristics in order for the host institution, like a Loyola or like a University of St. Thomas, to launch and sustain a successful two-year college. And so armed with that, you know, I um, got my 501c3 and the blessings of the Jesuits to um, offer this assignment. And um, so it sounds like um, the come to believe model is very much like a Rupe. It's it's housed at a four year institution. Uh, the goal is to serve as a bridge and to some extent a pipeline for that um, institution. Um it's it has all the the model has all the supports that you talked about social services, career counseling, um, access to mental health. Um, I noticed one thing in the in the come to believe model. It says it's a year round academic calendar. Did did you do that at Arupe or is this a, yes? What, why no, what, yeah. So. The schedule at Arupe is uh, for the fall semester and the spring semester identical with the rest of the undergrad calendar. Arupe students take four classes in the fall, four in the spring. And then from the Tuesday after Memorial Day into the last Friday in July, they take two more classes. So um, this allows for students who are commuters to focus on four classes rather than five. And it also, you know, for some students, uh, being in uh, school year-round was important, you know, for the community, for the other support services that Arupe offers. And, um, you know, I I don't know if Arupe students would agree with this or not, but I just thought it was a, a good retention tool. You know, I think for um, 
I mean, I really wanted to be in touch with these students year-round. If we said in May, okay, have a great summer and we'll see you in August, I was concerned that they might stop out, that they might, you know, be working full-time or a situation their family might arise that, you know, we can't assist with. And then they wouldn't, you know, uh, this was really a, a way of addressing my concerns about retention. So... Steve, what's the what's the right size for a, a come to believe campus? A couple hundred yeah. students. Yeah, you know. So my thing is always a critical mass. You know, um, you want to offer a couple of different pathway degrees, maybe something in health sciences or something in in um, STEM or something in business or something in social and behavioral sciences. Well. Unless you're just going to be one degree, the health professions, or one degree business, you need enough students, you know, to um, uh, in order to populate those degree programs, those associate degree programs, and you know, for the faculty to have full loads, you know, uh, you have to have enough students. Um, so, you know, for us, we were designed for 400 students, um, and you know recognizing that there was going to be attrition along the way, recognizing that some students would stay on beyond two years. Maybe it takes them two and a half or three years to complete the two-year degree. Um, but that was always the sweet spot for us to go to 400. And that made sense to me. We had three degree tracks, you know, at Arupe. And that was that was enough, you know. And we had 20 full-time faculty. So uh, that's the size of uh, uh, traditionally great high schools as well. And as a head of school, you can remember everybody's name, right? <laughs> Very important. Uh, small, know, supportive uh, environment. Steve, do, does this model require separate accreditation? Is a school like Arupe separately accredited or does it operate as a division of Loyola? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. So Arupe College, think of as you know, Loyola's business school or school of nursing or communication school or college of arts and sciences. This is their two-year degree uh, uh, program. Because this was, because um, Loyola Chicago had never offered a two-year associate degree before, we did have to go through an accreditation process. And I remember, you know, we were already getting applications from students and, you know, um, uh, so the accreditation team came in January 2015, and you know we were very well prepared. But you never know until you know. And so um, the accreditation team came, and they peppered us with a lot of questions, and they reviewed our materials. About two hours into their visit, one of the team members kind of took me aside and said, "Can my provost call you next week because we might want to do this on our campus?" So I thought. Okay, we're out of the doghouse. They like what they're hearing, you know. <laughs> yeah. Did, yeah. did that did that take like two years to get accredited? No, 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 no. Um, we received uh, provisional accreditation at that visit in January, and then we full we received full accreditation in uh, the spring. But what that January accreditation allowed us to do was begin to accept applications through our website, through the Arupe website, that were designated for Arupe College. You know, uh, so therefore we were able to enroll the first class um, that 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 fall. Steve, um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked to my friend Stig Leslie, um, who's a tech entrepreneur that became a, a, a very successful charter school network leader. And Stig is um, 
is now trying to reform higher education um, accreditation. And he argues that what we need are a new generation of these small, supportive, two-year uh, institutions that sound in many dimensions um, like Arupe and the Come, believe, come to Believe uh, network. So do, 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 you, do you buy that accreditation is a, a barrier to the sort of innovation that you're promoting in higher education? So I was just, I, I just taught a section of Stick's class <laughs> last month. So I'm very familiar with his desire to uh, rebuild higher education. He has some good points, you know. I think the larger issue for me is that um, it, there are times when higher ed leaders forget their, their one of their main purposes is to be an engine, a vehicle for social mobility. And um, uh, there are too many barriers that higher education can sometimes um, put forth and um, hang on to that get in the way of student success. So that might be a bigger topic for another time. But, um, but I, I just think that, um, you know, for we have these extraordinary students. We're worried about the demographic cliff. You know, uh, uh, lower birth rates are coming our way. You know, in three years, the robust high school classes are going to disappear. But there is a population of first-gen students, of Pell-eligible students, of undocumented students with great assets who have great contributions to make to higher education. Um, and they are often overlooked because they are not the, and I'm doing air quotes now, um, you know, traditional students. Uh, I'm thinking about scalability. Um... Do, do you hope that there's dozens uh, of models in the Come to Believe network? What, what's the potential here, the, the total addressable market? Could there be a uh, hundred of these two-year supportive, uh, affordable, accessible units within land-grant colleges as well? So, you know, we were, when Accenture and my team at Arupe and I worked on this replication feasibility study, it was almost, gosh, going on three years ago now. We, because the, uh, we were an N of two and the two were two Catholic private, you know, colleges, we looked at that as our universe and we identified some key criteria, you know. The university has got, first of all, the president of the university has to be a champion for this. And the university has to be in a place in its life cycle where it can take this on as a priority. Um, also, the university has to have stable enrollment. And, um, you know, we look at endowments of 200 million or higher uh, in terms of, you know, can you raise the funds uh, to support um, uh, what, what uh, student revenue doesn't cover? If that's all in place, where's the location of the university? Are you in an area where there are lots of Pell-eligible students that can easily commute to your campus? Do you have space on your campus? Because so it's so important for these students to see themselves as um, college students. And this is not the traditional community college, which is in the neighborhood where the students live, but rather students traveling to be at your university. Um, are you in an area where you have high-performing community colleges? If you do, 
then maybe this isn't needed because the students already have a good two-year uh, model, and then they can easily transfer to your four-year program because they've completed the associate degree successfully. So those are all the, um, the, the, the fit criteria. We looked at, you know, population centers. Um, so obviously I'm in New York, LA, I mean, you know, um, where there are hundreds of thousands of Pell eligible students. Um, um, uh, tens of thousands of undocumented students in high school right now, uh, that, that who will be Pell eligible, I should say. Um, and you know, we 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 we're talking to universities in these high uh, population areas. Now we're getting inquiries though from other universities, Jesuit, non-Jesuit, Catholic, and non-sectarian in smaller cities. So we conduct a little mini uh, feasibility um, analysis to say, all right, well, you know, what's the strength of your university? Do you have the bandwidth to take this on? Is your president really interested? Um, where are the students? Do you have enough, you know, Pell eligible students that can easily commute to, to, to your institution? So that's a very roundabout response to your question. My goal is 10 of these in five years. That'd be a that'd be a huge contribution. I, I think Steve, the other path to scale is um, that every other institution that's trying to improve their graduation rate is going to borrow uh, many of the successful features that uh, that you've innovated at uh, at Arupe. We're seeing some of that happening at land grant institutions. I know Georgia State has uh, has taken on many of the. Uh, the features that you have in in order to boost their their graduation rate, so they they have. Um, we're we're going to wrap with a quick segment uh, called one to one. Uh, I want to start with. Um, I'd love to have you t tell us one person that really inspired or informed your success at a at a Rupe. I would say uh, a student who. Um uh, was extraordinary and, uh, and they all were, but, um, she was undocumented. Uh, her father was deported, uh, during her enrollment with us. Um, and, um, she was on the Dean's list, um, every semester. And, and, you know, it was maddening because, um, she couldn't work. She didn't have papers, you know, and the family really needed income, particularly after the fa father uh, was removed. And um, you know, I'd find people to um, hire her for six weeks, but then saying, like, I'm being regulated. I, I, I can't, I mean, this can't be a long-term thing. And that student had such tenacity and such, um, I don't know, calm, and she was just so committed to her studies. And now she is a special ed teacher in uh, CPS in Chicago public schools. So uh, what I think, I mean, I just, she was in my office one time and talking about what happened the week before with her father. And I had, you know, an, an immigration attorney who helped her and her mother and the family. Um, but um, I so respected her. And I thought, God, when I was 18, I couldn't have kept it together and do so well academically. And I'm, you know, there's so many financial concerns and uh, living in two language worlds and commuting and all the rest. She was really extraordinary to me. Yeah. That's a, a beautiful answer. Um, two insights from your work, valuable to higher ed leaders. 
um, two secrets of success. I, I, I'm going to postulate that it, it was affordable and supportive were two things that were important about Arupe. Would you agree or add another one? Oh, no, no, those are those are key. Those are key. Affordable and supportive. Yes. And supportive in the fullest sense of the word, right? R- relational, um, supportive academically, creating a sense of community, um, the identity and belonging um, in all of those senses. So w- what's one additional insight uh, or inspiration that you'd like to leave with, with higher education leaders? Be bold. You know, I mean, don't be incremental. Um People said to me in Chicago, wow, you're moving too quickly. I'm glad I did. I mean, otherwise, Asia, who works with me, I wouldn't know her. And we really benefit from her, you know? So that would have been a big loss for Come to Believe had she not been in that first class in 2015. So, you know, I um, uh, don't want to be too in your face, but just, you know, are we changing names of buildings, taking down statues, having panels, our colleagues of color, our students of color, see that as like, you know, at best superficial, kind of shallow. How about doing something really substantive in the DEI world and, and, and do it with what you do? Offer people classes, teach them, which is what universities do. Give them degrees, but do it in a way so that they feel supported, so that they'll be successful, and so that they don't incur a lot of debt. We've been talking to Steve Katsouris. He's the author of Come to Believe, How the Jesuits Are Reinventing Education Again. He's the CEO of a a great, um, relatively new nonprofit called uh, Come to Believe Network, which is helping to revolutionize higher education to make it more affordable, accessible, uh, and successful for more uh, young people. Steve, we deeply appreciate your work, and thanks for being with us today. Tom, thanks for the great conversation. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.